Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. And hey, I want to remind everyone that AES will be hosting our inaugural A Simple Promise Golf Classic on Friday, November 18th, 2022. This golf tournament will benefit Simple Promise Farms, which is an amazing organization close to our hearts. If you or any companies would like to participate, there are still a few spots left to register. For more information, please see the link in the show notes. And thank you so much in advance for your generosity. We really look forward to seeing you there. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. Normally, I say, Matt, how's it going? But we have an absolute special guest here today, and it's an absolute honor to have Mr. Larry Offenbacher on the show. And uh, for those who are scratching their head, yes, that is Matt's dad here joining us today. Mr. Larry has countless years of experience and Matt had the idea to say, hey, why don't we get uh, Pops on the flow line here and we can hear his story and talk a little bit about oil and gas and perhaps some direction, but ultimately just to have some good wisdom in the room with a wealth of knowledge and someone who can actually tell us truly who Matt is and not just from what he tells everyone he is, I think would be amazing. So Mr. Larry Offenbacher, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine and you can call me Larry rather than Mr. Larry. Well... I want to give respect where respect is due. Let's wait and see how this turns out. Understood. Matt, and for the listeners, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm great. I mean, this is really exciting for me. So one, it's my dad. He taught me everything I know. I swore I'd never get into the oil field. And like I've said in the past, I ended up there because they were hiring. And it turns out that usually someone your family knows might be you know, a way to find a job. Yeah. But it's been a lot of fun, especially to be able to talk shop with your dad about stuff. And right. certainly we lived in Singapore and my dad worked in, you know, was involved in business in Indonesia and I was there for like a year. So like there've always been these things where our careers overlap in many years later. It's been really fun. And I think some of that experience would really encourage some of our listeners as it's been an encouragement to me. Right. So dad, that's why we have you here. Well, flattery will get you guys everywhere. <laughs> right. I'm honored to be here, and I hope that I can provide some insights. Maybe I'll just talk a little bit about how I got into the oil field. I think that would be a great place to start. And before you do that, Larry, I do want to say, you know, Matt's head is fairly large, but I'm going to make it a little bigger by saying you should be extremely proud of your son. He's provided a tremendous amount of value for this company, this whole entire organization. So you can go to bed tonight and knowing that you've done a phenomenal job, and Matt is an absolute stand-up guy. And does an amazing job for the company. Oh, thank you. I feel very proud of him myself. I'm glad we're recording this. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, how did this journey start? Well, let me not get too verbose, but I was the classic good guy in math and science in high school, so I had to be an engineer. I didn't know any engineers. I didn't have any mentors, but I went to Ohio State University, which had a wide array of different careers if engineering didn't work out for me. And it was cheap. And I chose metallurgical engineering because they had the most scholarships. So they taught me how to make steel and other things like that that were obsolete by the time I graduated. And I worked during my college career for a company that made underground coal mining equipment. And I got into mining and construction equipment through that. When I graduated, I worked for them for five years 
We made underground locomotives and continuous miners and conveyor systems. We also made automobile shredders and solid waste shredders and conveyor systems and all this heavy equipment. Great place for a metallurgist to work, but I was determining that I didn't really care for pure engineering. I went back to get my MBA at night and focused more on marketing and strategy and business development. And about that time, I had the opportunity to go to work for General Electric developing Stratapax blanks, PDCs for PDC drill bits. And it was a great blend of material science and marketing and strategy. And that was probably the best career move I made in my life. And I got in on the ground floor developing polycrystalline diamonds for drill bits. When was that? 1977 to 1982. So was that when like the PDC evolution was really ramping up? What's well, it was it was kinda... a concept. PDC bits only happened through the ingenuity, great funding, and great R and D of General Electric at that time. The the scientists at General Electric Research and Development Schenectady they developed synthetic diamonds and they came up with polycrystalline diamonds, which were used for machining non-ferrous materials. They couldn't machine ferrous materials because they would graphitize at the cutting point when they got very hot. The diamond would decompose into graphite. But they said, well, look, at if you can machine materials with diamond cutters, why can't you make a milling tool to machine rock rather than to crudely break it with a roller cone bit through compression no doubt or with a natural diamond bit which is basically a grinding tool no it can take care of very hard abrasive materials but it can't go very fast gotcha and was that here in houston you were with no this was in columbus ohio worthington ohio of all places so anyway i started out as an application development engineer we had to develop the right composition of a cutter for a drill bit, we had to find ways to attach it to a drill bit securely, which we came up with a very ingenious way to do it. We had to help drill bit manufacturers reinvent their designs of drill bits to accept milling cutters with the hydraulics and cutter exposure and rake angles and all that sort of thing. And again, the research and development department in Schenectady, New York, was very instrumental in solving some of these very challenging problems. Then I got into market development, and I worked with all the global drill bit manufacturers to take a concept to reality. And we actually, General Electric, designed and built some drill bits because we couldn't find anybody else motivated to do it. And we'd go out on field tests, and it was a big challenge because... What did we know about drilling? You know, I'd never been to a rig before. I'd been outdoors in rough environment with loud machinery and stuff, but I'd never been on a rig. And many of the early drill bits failed because they plugged up. They didn't have adequate hydraulics to keep up with the rate at which the drill bit could create cuttings. Big challenge. So anyway, the natural diamond drill bit companies became the most motivated, obviously, because they could move up hole. You know, a natural diamond drill bit at the time was used mostly for coring operations. But for the drill bits, it was only when you got into really sharp sandstones or very hard rock would use a grinding tool on would be effective. 
And now they could compete with mill-tooth roller cone bits, you know, drilling shale. Big opportunity, but they didn't know how to sell into that. It was really a big challenge for them marketing-wise, but they were highly motivated. The roller cone bit people would say, hey, you know, there are tremendous barriers to entry to come into the roller cone bit business, not just proprietary technology, but, but experience know-how. So they were very threatened by PDC bits. Like when you were going through this whole, you know, R&D phase and you're doing testing, was this a lot of like in theory testing or were you able to somehow find someone who would throw it in the ground to try and test it out or how did that work? Well, people like Sandia Labs were getting government funding to develop like things for geothermal drilling of all, all ah. things. What goes around comes around, right? Or hot, yeah. hot dry rock drilling and funding for things like pelletized drilling, shooting pellets into rock or laser drilling. So we got some funding through them. We didn't need the financial. We needed the access to field testing. For sure. But the diamond drill bit people gave us our first opportunity to field test versus their types of rock. And actually, PDC bits really had not been designed for very hard and abrasive rock. It was really for the shales, typically. But there were places in the North Sea where they had marlstone and chalk where they were using near-four turbines to try and get higher penetration rates with bladed kind of diamond bits. And so we've formed a, not a legal, just a practical partnership with near-four turbo drills, which are also the first steerable tools. They could actually drill directionally two or three degrees a hundred. And we made tremendous success in the North Sea in the Middle East, drilling chalks and milestones with PDC bits on near four turbo drills. No way. Did you spend time overseas while I did, doing this? Yeah. Okay. Whereabouts? North Sea mostly. I didn't really get to the Middle East too much. Okay. But ultimately PDC bits became a big reality when unconventional companies and individuals took it upon themselves to create a new market. There were companies like Davis and Hicks in Midland, Texas two good old boys who said, why can't we, with a machine shop, design some PDC bits and we've got connections with our uncles and fathers and brothers that will probably give us a run. And over time, they became successful in places like South Texas, drilling shale with oil-based mud that overcame the hydraulics problem, mm -hmm. the lubricity of shale cutting Big chips, these are big cuttings now. Yeah. Then you had to have the pump rate to clear the hole at the rate you were drilling it. That became a problem. In the North Sea, a company called Drilling and Services, founded by a guy named Dr. John Barr, who was a renowned rocket scientist, had developed gyros and stuff for the military, Cambridge graduate. He said, well, why can't I design drill bits? And he was very successful. They had that little company in Cheltenham, England, you know, controlled the market for drill bits in the North Sea for many years. They got bought by like Heikelog, which got built, bought by Reed. And anyway, by 1982, PDC bits were commercial. I don't know. They maybe had 10% of the market and they were able to drill shale in North America land, Canada and all around the world in chalk and things like that. Hydraulics were still a problem. But then when we went to Alaska, they said, 
well, why can't we just use water-based muds on the shales up here and we'll just tell the drilling contractors to give us bigger pumps? Well, if you don't want to work for us, then that's fine, but we'll find a contractor that'll upgrade their pumps. And that was a real key to success in PDC bits was getting 3,000 PSI mud pumps at high volumes that could clean cuttings. And then the next big development in PDC bits was the thermally stable diamond, which allowed them to drill the much harder interbedded formations. In 1982, I went to work for the largest diamond bit manufacturer, Christensen, which had just been bought by Norton. And Christensen was the leader in diamond bits, but they became the leader in PDC bits as well. And I was there as drill bit manager. But they also were very big in downhole tools, drilling motors, shocks, and jars, drilling jars, that sort of thing. And they developed those in their research center in Sella, West Germany. Anyway, I went into field sales and operations in the United States shortly after I joined Christensen, and we developed the steerable motor for directional drilling. Suddenly, you could steer as you drilled with a steerable motor. At that time, we got maybe six or eight degrees per hundred build rate. Ultimately, they got like 15 degrees per hundred build rate, which enabled horizontal drilling. And that was a very exciting time. And Norton Christensen also developed an MWD business. It wasn't the best MWD system, but over time, we perfected it. And we developed the first steerable drilling system, which we took to Alaska and Arco, who'd been our biggest customer for PDC bits and steerable motors, said, we'll use your MWD. If we bring it up here, we're not going to guarantee you anything, but we'll give it a try. So we did that. And then when I moved to Singapore with Matt along at that time, he was along in Denver and Utah as well. Yeah, I was born in Columbus, yeah, born in Columbus. Utah, Colorado, and then yeah. Singapore. I was three years old. Right. I remember <laughs> when the Toys R Us opened on Orchard Road. It's a yeah. fond childhood memory. <laughs> I bet uh, it was. Yeah. In the meantime, Dad was traveling through Asia, you know, yeah. promoting these wares. Yeah. We pioneered steerable drilling systems, a PDC bit, a steerable motor, and an MWD system to be able to drill continuously at a very high rate, a very high quality hole, to casing point directional wells. Mm. We did that with Total and Arco off Balak Poppin, where Matt spent one Christmas, which was memorable. <laughs> what was the memory, Matt? How, uh, describe this experience. Graphically passing a kidney stone and being inadvertently poisoned by the contrast media as they attempted to diagnose me. Um, <laughs> that was years after I was in Singapore. That was when he was in the oil field. <laughs> but I will say, so one of the things when I was on West Seno for Chevron, which is legacy Unical work, you know, one of the things Unical apparently was notorious for is they didn't fight stuck pipe. They just like planted BHAs, shot off and sidetracked. And so like. I remember we were there and these were like workovers years later. And dad, you were like, yeah, we got quite a few of our directional assemblies are still down there. <laughs> and it was yeah. one of those. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a lot of Garuda airplanes along, born, oh, along the jungles yeah. of Borneo too. Say no more. When I went there, we had Unical's MWD work. They weren't using steerable motors or PDC bits. So we were able to convert that over. But then in Singapore, yeah, we had 21 field locations, and so I was traveling all the time, but Singapore is a great place to have your family be safe while you're 
traveling in and out of a great airport and uh, coming home to a comfortable place. But I spent a lot of time in China developing the market for PDC bits and doing technology transfers for MWD and drilling motors with the Chinese there and Brunei, Malaysia, Thailand. It was pretty exciting times. One thing I'd like to throw in here is you didn't necessarily have the international bug to get an assignment overseas. How did you decide you wanted to go to take your family to Singapore? It's kind of like the same way I got to come back to the United States. You get a call in the middle of the night on a Sunday night. If we got an opportunity for you, your boss is in a different state or a different country. We've got an opportunity for you. You've done a great job, you know, managing the northern and western United States, introducing all these new products, growing our business. We've got an opportunity for you to run the Asia Pacific region. And I said, well, I've been to China in 1981 when I was with General Electric for a PDC introduction, but I've never actually been to Singapore. And I've got a family here and we live in Denver and I really love my job and our neighborhood. So how about if I go over there and take a look? Well, no, we don't have time for that. We just fired the general manager for Asia Pacific and you need to get over there because we got to negotiate with the union our new plant contract in Singapore and you have to lay some people off. So you need to get over there right away. Wow. So, what an opportunity. Yeah, what an opportunity. It seemed, uh, kind of non-negotiable at that point at 1 a.m. Yeah. on a Sunday. That's yeah. tough. That, that's a tough it's, time call. It uh, turned out okay, but the first six months were pretty tough. And then when it was time to come back, it was 1986, depth of the oil field depression in, in the United States. Our business was booming in the Far East. And we merged with one of our biggest competitors, Eastman Christensen, which is a leader in directional drilling, but they had no tools. We had the directional tools and the drilling tools. So it turned out to be a great marriage, but I knew this, we were merging. I didn't know whether I was going to have a job or not. So I get a call in the middle of the night. What time is it? And I said, well, it's four o'clock. He says, oh, I'm sorry. I never could get that time difference right. But <laughs> He said, uh, good news is you have a job. Bad news, you should have been here about a week ago. Because, and where's the job? It's in Houston. I said, well, I've traveled to Houston, but I've never lived there. Can I take a look? <laughs> well, no, no. There's a pool car at the airport. And the keys will be in it. And uh, you need to drive down by the Astrodome to your new office and get here real quick because we got to lay off half the people. Wow. <laughs> so, so I see a trend here. Yeah, right. <laughs> so anyway, it turned out well. It was four years of very hard work, but Eastman Christensen became the leader in directional drilling and pioneered horizontal drilling. And I was responsible for product management and marketing. And then within about a year, we divisionalized and of all things, I could have taken the drill bits in the downhole tool division, but no, they gave that to somebody else. They gave me the MWD and wellbore surveying division to manage. Mm. And I didn't have an electronics gene in my body, but <laughs> we, we were able to survive that. And then we sold to Baker Hughes, and I went to Baker Hughes for uh, about a year before I went to Smith International to be head of marketing and general manager of their directional drilling division, which we sold to Halliburton. So I went to Halliburton 
And there we developed the Pathfinder MWD LWD system. Yeah. And the first effective steerable system, which was a stabilizer-based system that was an adjustable stabilizer that could be commanded through MWD technology from the surface to change direction. Hmm. And I don't know, after that, I realized I really wasn't really good for big companies. Along the way, there were times when I was unemployed and I told my family, it's a good thing we saved some money. And I did some consulting. I took a couple of jobs along the way that were outside of the oil field, but it oil field kept calling me back. My last real effective job was I was CEO of a startup steerable motor company called Rotary Steerable Tools was funded by Shell Technology Ventures. And we commercialized that relatively low cost system and sold it to Halliburton. Very cool. How long ago was that? I can't remember. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) It It was two years of incredibly hard work and I pretty much finished my career consulting, assessing emerging technologies, determining their market potential, huh. a lot of work for private equity companies and you know, due diligence for acquisitions they wanted to make in the oil field. Fascinating. Very well, interesting. I think the consulting thing was interesting too, because a lot of this was, you know, the oil field is a pretty small place in many ways, but you would be able to call friends you broke out with or whatever, who are now vice president of drilling at an operator and say, hey, is this technology worth anything to you? And then be able to report. So it was like a combination of being compensated nicely by these money guys, but also kind of calling your old friends and keeping in touch with them yeah, and having your finger on the pulse, which I mean, some partners were better than others, but I think you enjoyed that a lot. A really nice thing about consulting is you are self-employed and Good news is you don't have to take a job that you do really don't want, mm. or if it's somebody you don't really want to work for. But of course, it's not a steady paycheck. It doesn't have benefits. Obamacare is very costly for many people. I could tell you that. Okay. But as Matt suggested, one of the things that I think made me most effective, I worked for so many different companies that I really developed quite a network with people in many different technology fields that I could relate to, they could relate to me, and I could call them up and say, hey, you know, it's Larry. You remember me? We worked together a few years ago here and there. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I know you're a specialist in reservoir engineering or blowout preventers or whatever, and we're assessing an emerging technology. I don't want anything proprietary from you, but I want to know what are the real needs in this technology or what are the unmet needs Mm. this technology claims it can do this is that meaningful what would it have to do to demonstrate to you that it's real right how big an application market is that if someone had it what else would they have to have like in distribution to be able to really make this commercial and of course you'd be able to also interview competitors and customers potential customers current customers of a business or a technology. So, I mean, I learned a lot in the process as well. You had to really stay current Mm. in the technology. Many times I try and turn down jobs for private equity clients because I don't really understand. I haven't gotten experience in this technology or this market or this application. 
they say, well, you know people and give it a try. Right. So I'd learn a lot in the process. Yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, towards the end of your career, you leveraged obviously the large network that you had established throughout your career. And so I'm curious, what are some of the suggestions or keys to establishing those strong strategic relationships that you'd built over the years? Because, you know, in oil field, you know, they always say, you know, your network is extremely important. And a lot of times it's who you know, not necessarily what you know. A combination of both is obviously the holy grail. But can you give any advice for those that are, you know, still like us that are establishing new relationships, building our network? And how do you maintain strong relationships with those people throughout your career? One of the things that always appealed to me about the oil field, and maybe it's changed a little bit, but particularly when I started in it in like the late 70s, there was a lot of relationships that were built on trust. You know, if you don't have personal trust, personal integrity, people don't know you and don't know that you're a solid citizen, then they really don't want to deal with you. So I think I'm not applauding myself, but I think I always tried to establish a relationship of trust and support, mutual support with people. And again, honesty, you know, like if you're consulting, you want to pick their brains, but you also don't want to use anything against them or take advantage of them. And I always tried when I was interviewing people to share non-proprietary information that I had. So I've talked to 10 potential customers and they're telling me that what they really value in this technology or in this company is these kinds of things. Is that something that you found to be the case? No, but that's an interesting perspective. So it's kind of a sharing of information and perspectives. And if it's something that someone I'm interviewing wants to pick my brain on, I'll be happy to do that too. I'll be able to share my perspectives, but be honest that these are my perspectives not necessarily valid. Sure. I think it was interesting, even the gentleman, I believe it was Tom. I met at the AD. Yeah, Tom Mounder. Yeah. He was just absolutely thrilled. Larry's son, you know, really. And it was one of those, obviously, there was this great relationship there, deploying tools in Alaska. And he was like, I need your dad's number. I want to call him. Like, this is so exciting. Talking to Richard Spears before the AD Fluids Conference. I was like, well, you know, my dad. And he goes, oh, everybody knows Larry and kind of threw up his hands and smiled. I think it's a reminder that, you know, people remember you for, I mean, not just the things that you deliver on the technology side or a solution for them, but they remember you for you too. And I've enjoyed just seeing people smile when they realize that, you know, I'm your son or, you know, a fond memory from, you know, way back when. And then the other interesting thing, you know, shifting topics a little bit, I feel like dad, if you looked at your professional profile and all these things, you know, a lot of people see success, success, success. I remember those times you'd come home and say, I don't know if I have a job or, you know, where you said, look, I'm too old. No one's going to hire me at this level. I got to find something else to do. Or like the path was never this clear thing, you know, but thankfully, you know, you're enjoying your retirement. You're doing these things. But, you know, a lot of people see that and they say, man, easy street. But just all those times of uncertainty that you recall, you know, coming home and trying to break to your family, these things like, was there something other than we didn't know what we were doing. What helped you kind of push through on that stuff other than maybe you didn't feel like you had a choice? Yeah. Well, let me shift gears a little bit. Let me tell you a little bit about my son too. So he followed me around in the oil field. He didn't have really a choice, you know, growing up. 
but he went and got his engineering degree in electrical engineering from University of Texas. So he's about to graduate. And he said, you know, dad, I've now found out the jobs out there are all about like CAD CAM design of electronic circuit boards. You sit in front of a CAD CAM station every day in a dark room designing circuit boards. I just don't think I can ever do that for, I'll shoot myself, you know, if I have to do that for more than a week. And I said, well, and he said, so I don't know what I want to do, you know, as a career. I said, well, if I were to compare you to me, and that's not fair, but, you know, you were an Eagle Scout. I dropped out of Scout Star level. You worked on cars. I changed oil in cars. You really like camping. I didn't like camping that much. I did it for you as, as much as I had to, but you enjoy camping. You like outdoor things. You're very mechanical. You've seen my career in the oil field. One thing I could say is it's very cyclical. If you ever get into the oil field, you have to save your money. Mm. You have to be prepared for those yep. down times when through probably no fault of your own, you're going to find yourself unemployed because it's a very cyclical industry. But I can tell you this, been never a dull moment in the oil field. Even when things are slow, you've got a challenging well or a new application or some new challenge that you really have to put your head around and figure out and work with the team to get it done. I think you probably, you have a better natural background for this kind of work than I did when I started. So I think you'd enjoy it. I helped him get his first job. He got the job, but ironically, you know, I worked for Smith International for three years or five years or something, a pretty long stint for me in my career. And I got to know those executives pretty well. I was on the executive team, you know, heading up marketing and general manager of the directional drilling division. Just so happens, you know, they were the primary investor in MI drilling fluids. And most at that time, most of the people that I used to work with were running MI. And the marketing manager who I hired at Smith to work for me, a very bright guy, he became marketing manager at MI. And I called him up and talked to him about Matt. And he said, we have this PROACT program. And we only hire like one or two engineers a year, but sight unseen, I'm sure we'd be happy to interview your son. And he went and he got the job. And I think that prepared him very well. Three and a half years, wasn't it? Six weeks on, two weeks off. And the two weeks off, you lived upstairs with us. And it was, whoa, a, whoa, it was, hey. a, it was a pigsty up there. You wouldn't want to go up there with all the sweaty running clothes and gym socks every. Oh, I'm sorry. I've got a point of order here. I'd, I'd like to clear the record. I spent a lot of time in Austin as well. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. You kept trying to bill me for electricity and rent, which I guess was your right. It was always nice to see my parents every six weeks or whatever, too. And yeah, I was always flying through Houston anyways. Right. Larry, I have to ask for the last I've worked with Matt ever since he's come on board here with at AES. But you've kind of like alluded to a few little things of Matt, you know, whether early on in his career, growing up into camping and, you know, a lot of activity outdoors, mechanics. But can you shine some more light on what Matt was like growing up? Because I'm genuinely curious. I don't know any Matt's friends that he grew up with, but I'm sure from a father's perspective, give us the good, bad, and the ugly, and maybe some funny stories, you know, even just very high level. I would just love to hear it. I think that's probably not appropriate. 
Well, I mean, uh, I don't know. What do you have on me, Dad? <laughs> like, now I'm getting nervous. Yeah. Like, I don't remember anything yeah. too incredible. I mean, it doesn't have to be negative. I'm just saying, like, it could be positive. Some big accomplishment when he was eight years old. I mean, who knows? He'd always get very interested in a lot of different things, you know. And he was always a pretty happy boy. I mean, he laughed a lot. I could get him to laugh so much he would tear up and almost fall down. <laughs> nice. Uh, you liked making me laugh. Though. Pretty funny guy. <laughs> it was, yeah. Yeah, it was. Dad jokes. And, uh, <laughs> and he and his sister were both very adaptive, probably more than their mother. We traveled all over, but they're both born in Columbus, Ohio, which is where my wife and I met at Ohio State University. And I worked for the mining construction company and then General Electric there. But Pretty much, well, they were both toddlers, preschoolers. We moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, and I was there for like a year and a half. We moved to Denver, and I was there for a year and a half. And then we moved to Singapore, and I was there for a year. And then we moved to Houston, and that really Stuck. became home. But I think that helped all of us to become more adaptable, flexible, and make home wherever we were. Yeah, very cool. I remember one really interesting thing, a shell guy in the neighborhood, his children ran cross country in high school with our kids. And he was, a, he's from, what's a little town outside Midland, Odessa? I'm talking about the Gertz. Oh, Kermit. Kermit, yeah. Yeah, we have a big facility in Kermit. Yeah. yeah. They're, yeah. All, they're all Kermit, like fifth generations. You know, it was a ghost town when they moved to Houston and now it's not. Right. But we met at a little party of cross-country parents and kids before a big state meet and he said larry tell me something about yourself and i said well you know i'm from ohio and in the oil field and this is what i do you seem like a pretty nice guy he says let me give you some advice now that you're in texas he said <laughs> first of all people are going to ask you where you're from and my advice is to say well i'm not from texas but i got here as quick as i could he <laughs> okay. said, let me tell you something else about Texas. He says, we don't really care who your daddy is. We don't really care how much money you make or what your title is. We really care about what kind of person you are. I may be being a little bit too theatric about the oil field, but that kind of summed up the oil field for me, too. I've worked in other industries. And we've lived in other places, and I've done business in a lot of different places. But I think the character of the people and that you're trustworthy. And I found Houston to be, in Texas, to be the least pretentious place that I ever lived. Wow. Very cool. That says a lot. I mean, you've clearly traveled the globe and I've lived in so yeah. many different places. That's really interesting to hear. Yeah. Huh. Crazy. So is, would you say Houston, I mean, you've obviously planted your seeds here, everything, you know, kid and, you know, and everything else. Looking back, if it wasn't Houston, what was your favorite place to work, live? I mean, I really liked Denver a lot. Denver, okay. Maybe it's a point in time, but we lived on a cul-de-sac, and there were a couple people from, from Colorado, a couple from Connecticut, a couple from Montana, a couple from California, and it was just a melting pot, and the outdoors were so beautiful, and the climate was so nice. But my wife doesn't really like cold weather or dry atmosphere because it makes her skin dry out so we're gonna have to go to singapore or houston <laughs> yeah denver's not the place if that's your criteria well i say all these good things about houston though i will say this nobody comes to houston because they want to this isn't the place they always wanted to live 
Mm. No, it's not a destination. (laughs) Right. Maybe it's from Midland, but I I apologize. Hey, let's uh, be nice. uh, If people like Midland, they should enjoy it as much as they can. But Yeah, it's kind of like only a mother could love that child. (laughs) (laughs) To all of our West Texas people, you know, you don't have to. (laughs) My dad does not speak on behalf of AES Drilling Fluids. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) I like going to Midland. I think the people there are great. They they, they have some of the the best people. It's always welcoming, and I would agree. The people are what makes Midland, for sure. And I want to respect your time, but I'm really curious, kind of taking a step back, and you've been involved with deploying a lot of different technology, you know, perhaps emerging technologies, trying to get them into the market, commercialized. What would you say was part of deploying the success of deploying new technology? Because whether it's AES or whether that's whatever oil field service company, you know, we're always tempting to deploy new technology for whatever reason, optimization, automation, efficiencies, whatever the case is. But what would you say would contribute to the success of deploying new technology? Because there has to be, you know, the economics have to make sense. It all has to come together, right? And then as an industry, which I'm sure you're probably more aware of than most, is that we're so reluctant to change. I would say we're getting better as we evolve as an industry. But can you speak a little bit on that before we close out? Because that's something that I'm really fascinated about and would love to hear your take. Yeah, well, I think it's really, really critical that before you even embark on developing a new technology or new product, you really have to establish the need. What are the criteria and is the need great enough in scope as well as the opportunity for improvement to overcome that resistance to change? Then you have to do every conceivable evaluation you can in the lab, theoretically, simulations to minimize the risk of a failure in the field. But even the best tests are only going to determine that it might work. If it fails in the lab, it's definitely going to fail in the field. So do everything you can before you take it out there. And then, you know, make sure you have very well-detailed plan with well-trained, competent, you know, application engineers on site. Involve the customer to let them know what the expectation is and just no surprises. Everybody has to understand there's risk involved. You need to mitigate those risks. You know, things like PDC bits never would have happened if you hadn't found that relatively rare operator who gave their drilling engineer the freedom to take a risk, and he had to be smart enough to make it a calculated risk. You know, there were a handful, as I reflect on them, of companies and individuals within those companies that were instrumental in commercializing things like PDC bits or steerable systems or rotary steerable tools. And I think the industry, at least when I left it, had become so conservative and so risk averse, it was very hard to find individuals who might have to risk their career if something went wrong. Even though they faced up to it, they knew that they were taking a risk. Their supervisors knew it, but there had to be a fall guy if something went wrong. Oftentimes, it wasn't like a lost well or a stuck pipe. It was just, we lost two or three days, and who's going to pay for this? Well, you just can't make progress unless you do that. And to think, I mean, 
incredible improvements that, you know, my background is mostly directional drilling. You know, I looked at bit records in Western Oklahoma, 28,000 foot gas wells. It had 263 drill bits, you know, <laughs> and they got down to like two and three eighths inches, you know, because yeah. they had to keep casing every time they had to trip at a good run at 23,000 feet was Golly. 37 feet. And now it's like, okay, they're not drilling 28,000 foot gas wells in Western Oklahoma in 10 days, but they're drilling, you know, 20,000 foot wells with 10,000 foot laterals in six days. You know, they went from six casing strings to two or three. It's incredible. In uh, first deal in Arco, Alaska, in the Kapark field, we went up there, they were running six or seven drill bits drilling an 8,700-foot directional well, pretty conventional well, in 28 days. We got it down to three days, three and a half days in uh, two drill bit runs, you know? I mean, like, why not, you know? <laughs> That's so cool. So it was so, so cool. That's part of the excitement about being in the oil field. You know, it's interesting because you allude to, you know, these wells that took hundreds of days and 200 and some odd bits and multiple casing strings to now we're drilling you know, monoboard, two-string wells, 20,000 feet, some even more. I mean, how much better could we get, do you think? Because there's only so much casing you can eliminate. So, like, do you think we're kind of at a peak here with how we do well design, or what do you think is next? I think there is a point of diminishing returns, and I think the, the key now is, first of all, well productivity, getting wells to, uh, used to be maybe they estimated you'd get 15 to 20% yield out of a reservoir with I don't know what it is now with hydraulic fracturing and refracturing and reentries and all that. Sure. But I think a lot of productivity is going to come from maximizing the hydrocarbon potential from a reservoir or yeah. from a well. And I think the more automated drilling and eliminating the number of people on a rig site, sure. you know, they're with the great dream it always been that you have not one or two directional drillers on a well, but you have a directional driller over six or eight rigs. And with the sensor technology and managed pressure drilling for safety and you know, automating all that with the rig sensors and equipment handling to you know be able to drill remotely and with the least amount of people. I think that's the dream right now, especially on land yeah. operations. Yeah. Well, they're getting closer and closer by the day. I remember being in-house with a larger operator, and this was a couple of years ago, but they had just got to a point where they had sort of a remote center, and they were drilling or steering wells from the office, which I found was fascinating, and now more and more folks are doing it. So yeah, it's slowly getting there, but it's, you know, slow iterations and baby steps to getting there. But yeah, you can't find roughnecks anyways. So right. that's limiting, P, you know, <laughs> Well, personnel. I think we're going to be forced to get to that, that point, that's right? That's kind of what I think too, is if, yeah. if you can't get these people, you're going to have to come up with some way to automate. Yeah. But yeah, interesting. I know it's always been the dream, but it is interesting to see aspects of it. And a lot of the automation, I think, starts with directional drilling because you're not operating at the bid anyway. So whether you're in a shack on the rig site or through satellite, keeping an eye on things. I think they'll sort of be the leaders of all this. Yeah. Well, the big innovations in directional drilling were really having near-bit sensors that you're not just mechanically hitting a target. You don't know the target until you're in the reservoir. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it undulates and, and you have thing. faults. So it's a 
the geosteering and things like they've done in Sakhalin Island, where they keep it in a two-foot window, 15, 20,000 feet from the onshore to offshore. It's crazy. Under uh, Arctic waters with icebergs floating by. You know, the rig isn't seeing any of that, you know. Yeah. They'll probably be doing less of that for They'll the They'll probably be future. doing that, yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid so. Right. But the innovations that created that happened. It was incremental theory of constraints. You know, you get a drill bit to work and then that'll give you avoid trips and be able to drill faster. Well, then you've got to get the hole clean properly and you've got to make sure that you have a stable well bore so you can drill casing point to casing point. Yeah. And then if you're going to drill directionally, you've got to be able to still rotate the pipe while you're steering. So you got to have a steerable motor or rotary steerable tool. And if you're going to have to stop and drop a single shot every 100 or 200 feet, well, that kind of defeats the purpose. Or no if kidding. you can't rotate the drill pipe because you're using a wireline steering tool, that kind of defeats the purpose. So you better have an MWD tool. So it's step by step. What's the next constraint keeping us from being where we need to be? And of course, I'm sure drilling fluids have a lot to do with that as well with Hole cleaning and well bore stability and mm-hmm. we're working on it. Yeah. Well, I oh, hope yeah. so. Ongoing, ongoing yeah. projects. We're counting on you. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, uh, Larry, this has been an absolute pleasure and I've certainly enjoyed the stories and a little bit of the banter between you and Matt. It's always good to have someone to kind of put him in his place every once in a while, but all jokes aside, it's been a pleasure. Matt, Larry, any closing last words? I'm just really glad to have you on dad. I mean, it's sorry if I brag too much or talk too no, much. The, the but... recorded compliments I will continue to use. <laughs> I'll edit um, out all the rest. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nothing you know. but Matt highlights. Right? <laughs> I would just say, you know, as hard as, <laughs> yeah. as hard as things get in the oil field, you know, you've always been a huge encouragement to me, not just in work, but in, in life, of course, as my dad. So it's just really cool. And I know a bunch of friends and even people we don't even know are really going to enjoy hearing just some great stories from the oil field. So thanks again for taking the time. I owe you a beer or three. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. And for all the listeners out there, if you enjoyed the show, please send us a message, write a review on whatever platform you're listening to. If you have any questions or are just curious to hear anything else, hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com. If you haven't yet, please link up with Matt and I on LinkedIn. We're always providing content. Follow AES Drilling Fluids. We're continuously putting content out there. We're educating all our followers with technical tips and just updates and spreading the good word about what we're doing, not only for our customers, but for the industry in general. And thanks again for all the support. Until next time, take care, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.